Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's leading experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your hosts, Adam Bernheim and Michael Charlie. Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. I am Adam Bernheim and I'm joined by Mike Chung. Mike, how's your summer going? It's going very well. Uh, it's in full swing already and we're almost halfway through almost, it seems like. Yeah, I think you came back from a trip to Greece recently. How was that? It was very eye-opening. Uh, a little trip with my uh, church group. Uh, similarly, though, you just came back from overseas, looks like Israel. I did. I got back from Israel, which was also a terrific trip. Today, we're privileged to have with us Dr. Jean Ackman, who started by completing her undergraduate work at Harvard University and continued to Yale Medical School, where she received her MD, followed by a general medicine internship in Connecticut. Dr. Ackman went on to complete a diagnostic radiology residency at the Massachusetts General Hospital, including many fellowships in pediatric radiology and thoracic radiology. She then completed a fellowship in body and women's imaging at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and has been a staff radiologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital for several years. She is a global expert in the field of non-vascular thoracic MR, which will serve as the foundation for today's discussion. Today's interview with Dr. Ackman has gone a little bit long, so we've elected to split it into two parts. So on this episode, we will be listening to part one of a two-part series with Dr. Ackman. How are you today, Dr. Ackman? I'm well, thank you. And you? We're doing great. <laughs> thank you for coming all the way to New York to, to talk with us about a, a very interesting topic, um, something you're very passionate about. I Indeed. <laughs> We're really excited about today's interview because you're an expert on a topic of non-vascular chest MR that I think is an area of great interest, but not necessarily a great experience for many of our listeners. So um, we're really excited that this might um, shed some light on a really practical topic uh, for those in our field. Um, but maybe we'll just start by learning a little bit about you and your backgrounds, where you're from, how you came to being a physician and a thoracic radiologist. Okay. Um, well, in a nutshell, let's see. Grew up in Chappaqua, New York, um, and uh, went to public school there and um, developed an interest first in plants and then animals and then people. Um, and pretty much by the age of 14, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Just kind of went straight through. I, you know, I tried to dodge it because I was daunted by how long it would take. Um, so I thought, could I be a psychologist or should I, could I do physical therapy or just something else that also interested me? But um, in the end, it just seemed that um, 
I was made to do this and I, I wanted to go forward and become a doctor. So uh, after high school, I went to Harvard and um, got a great liberal arts education there. Did major in biology because I thought it would be a good way to get the pre-med requirements done. And I just sincerely loved biology and nature. I always had since I was a very young child. So um, it was a good match for me. But then it gave me a chance to take a lot of foreign languages and fine arts and music. I got to write a string quartet for one particular uh, course, which was a, a wonderful experience. Um, it was a requirement uh, instead of a final exam. Um, and then I went on to Yale Medical School, um, which was just a wonderful low-pressure place to be because, um, you know, while I was surrounded by a lot of bright people, I think the program uh, took up people who were self-motivated and didn't need grades to kind of motivate them. And um, so it was really, it was pass-fail. Uh, there was no honors uh, doled out at the end. It was literally just about learning. And it was right on the main campus. So that was really great. Um, got to know people at the law school, the undergrad, the, you know, everywhere. And um, then I uh, did an internship in, in uh, medicine. So then I did a uh, residency in diagnostic radiology at MGH, um, which was just a wonderful uh, place to learn. We got to see so much, big hospital, uh, so much pathology, so many people interested in learning, and uh, just very stimulating place. And I did my I did two mini fellowships in my fourth year: six months in pediatric radiology and six months in thoracic or chest radiology, and. Uh, at the time, my academic interest was ultrasound, and in, more specifically, uh, obstetrical ultrasound. And so I tried to figure out the best place to go for ultrasound training. One of many reasons that I liked ultrasound is that, one, I, I actually liked being with the patient. I liked mm -hmm. scanning myself, and, and uh, so it was fun. I loved the fact that it, it doesn't use ionizing radiation to image the patient, and I'm very consistent. Uh, you'll see uh, with MRI, that's an, one of many reasons why I really like it. The Br I wanted to stay in the Boston area, and the Brigham is super strong in ultrasound. It actually had an ultrasound division in the radiology department, and with stellar people like Peter Dubelay and Carol Benson, Mary, uh, Mary, Mary Frades, Faye Lang, Rusty Brown, just super strong, Beryl Benassaroff, and uh, so I was lucky. I didn't have to go anywhere else because there aren't that many centers, and there weren't even then in, in radiology departments that have such a strong focus on ultrasound and such great people. So stayed there um, and uh, did a, f the way the fellowship was constructed was actually body imaging. And there were um, five to six months of ultrasound, including three months of high-risk OB, um, three months of body MRI, which was, was key, a couple months of CT and uh, one month of CT intervention and a day a week of MAMO because it was sort of the women's imaging version of the body imaging fellowship that they offered. And great people there. Great, I had great training with Claire Tempany in uh, body MRI, Stu Silverman, Corsani, um, and then um, ended up going into private practice. And you may ask after all that wonderful training, why in the world did I do that? It, it wasn't my initial intention. Uh, what I had hoped to do was stay on, actually, in the ultrasound department. And I remember Peter Dubelay telling me that we don't have something now, but in a year, we might, and or we, we very well might. And uh, at the time, I was um, married and um, about to have my first child, and um, my husband had been diagnosed with leukemia. And um, I, I made a, a decision that it would be best to go into private practice because I needed to 
uh, be sure that I could support my family if we were to lose him. And so I went into private practice for 10 years at um, one of the local hospitals outside of Boston, Emerson Hospital in Concord, strong private practice. Uh, and um, it was great training also. So basically for 10 years, I read everything from head to toe, pediatric, adult, OB, like everything. They quickly figured out that I had some training in MRI and I got stationed uh, on the MR rotation a fair amount. So I was reading MR from head to toe for 10 years. And I had only been trained, I'd been trained in body and I had read about two knees at MGH as a resident and one shoulder. So, like I, <laughs> so I had the books open trying to figure out, you know, just while I was reading these things. And uh, I had to teach myself a lot. I would periodically go to conferences that were sponsored not only by Harvard, but by other institutions. And it made me realize that it's very valuable to learn radiology from other institutions and that there isn't only one way to do things. And if you grow up in one institution and stay there, you can get very dogmatic about certain things and it's not necessarily, there isn't necessarily only one approach to things. So that was very valuable as well. And then about eight years into private practice, I, I met my uh, second husband-to-be. I had lost my first two leukemia um, when my kids were little. Um, and they were about three and five. And um, my second husband, uh, Dr. Max Rosen, was in academia. He was at the BI, a deaconess. And uh, he kind of woke me up to just uh, to academia again, and it made me realize what, what I had been missing. And I also felt that, um, you know, I had all this great training, and I wanted to contribute in a greater way than I could if I had stayed in private practice. And, and I wanted to be paid to write because I actually like writing, and I feel like it's a way to reach more people and share information. And so a couple of years later, you know, I, I called uh, Dr. Joanne Shepard at MGH. She had been so, uh, someone who I looked up to and who had trained me uh, and chest, and I, I had felt particularly strong in chest in my private practice. It was, it was an area in which I felt I could contribute because I had developed some diagnostic specificity from my fellowship training as a fourth year uh, at MGH. And, um, you know, I asked Dr. Shepard, yeah, could, you, could you use anybody, could you use anyone right now? Because I'd be interested in coming back, and timing is everything. She uh, invited me to come back, and, and you know, I interviewed and, and uh, took me right back in. And uh, so that was about 11 and a half years ago. Then, you know, I became a chest radiologist, even though initially I thought I wanted to be a different kind of radiologist. So it's, it's just, it's strange how things work out. I think what, what happened with the OB is that I just realized uh, that it seemed like that field was plateauing a little bit and that it was being taken over by the obstetricians and that if I had stayed focused in it that I would have not been marketable had I needed to move somewhere else and it, it did turn out that about a year and a half into private practice I was offered a position at the Brigham in the ultrasound department but at that point I was very well ensconced. I actually had a second baby on the way or already had my second um, and it wasn't the right time to go back and and also I, I just I realized that a full-time um, job in academia I would never be done and 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 that I couldn't be the kind of mother that I, I wanted to be at that time especially with a husband who might or may not make it and uh, and so I, I stayed in Emerson for that reason mm. and 
yeah, so then anyway, I went back to MGH, and it was daunting at first because uh, I think some people can come into a new situation and they just they're just confident and uh, they just jump right in and they they feel like they they belong and I think there's a part of me that's like that but there's also a part of me that has the imposter syndrome and uh, I, I gather that's more common in women than men but I don't know if uh, if you have experienced it but either of you but um, but and so you know I really felt like I had to prove myself um, because I'm sure a lot of my colleagues were like who who is she you know what how did she show up here what what you know and uh, anyway I just put my uh, head down and, and got to work and uh, listened and learned and um, you know I've been practicing for a while but you still can doubt yourself right and then your career shifted to having this focus on MR how, how did that develop I think you told us a little bit about some of the seeds that were sown early on in your career and training but how did you um, develop a, a true focus and expertise in, in that specifically well thank you for asking so I've been going out about my thing and just uh, going about the various rotations we have inpatient uh, chest x-ray, outpatient chest x-ray, CT, we have PET. And uh, I'd been at MGH for a couple of years. And uh, one day I saw one of my colleagues, Dr. Matt Gilman, reading a chest MRI. And I was like, wow, I haven't seen any of these in the past two years since I've been here. And um, it just dawned on me that, gosh, we're not doing a whole lot. And looking over his shoulder, I saw an MRI that was incredibly noisy. It was done without breath hold imaging. It was virtually unreadable. And I think it was an MR for mesothelioma. We, I think we're doing a lot because the Brigham was super strong uh, in uh, mesothelioma and had a Dr. Sugar Baker over mm -hmm. there. And so he was like the drain for all of those cases or many of them. Um, but at any rate, I saw this study and I was like, my goodness, if that kind of study came across my board, I'd have to read it and I'd be hedging, you know. If I have to make a decision about whether the chest wall is involved and it's that fuzzy, uh, I will not feel good about it. And I, I, will, I will look like uh, the ultimate hedger and I, I don't want to read that way. Uh, and so I asked Dr. Shepard if I could develop a, an MR protocol that was more readable and more up-to-date uh, because it, the study that I looked at didn't have some features of body imaging that had been in existence for a while and wasn't taking advantage of those newer pulse sequences and higher quality um, imaging. Luckily she said yes mm -hmm. and so I developed our first protocol. It was called the mediastinal MR protocol and it was a one-size-fits-all. It kind of had everything you needed and it had in and out of phase T1 weighted imaging, it had T2 weighted imaging uh, of different types. It had, you know, single shot uh, fast spin echo as well as an EKG gated uh, double inversion recovery T2 that was breath hold. And, uh, and then it had pre and post dynamic contrast enhanced imaging with uh, ultra fast three dimensional gradient echo. And it was done at 20 seconds, one, three, and five minutes. And if you, using that protocol could address um, it could answer questions regarding uh, compartmentalization of the lesion as well as tissue characterization. And, and so it kind of, it, it had all you need. And, it, and uh, so we installed it on all the magnets and um, discarded the outdated protocols. And if you build it, they will come. Uh, so mm -hmm. every once in a while, I'd be reading a chest CT for, and uh, have to 
hedge because the, by Chessie T, the finding was indeterminate, but I thought that the MR could add some value, and that judgment was based on my experience for, you know, 10 years reading MR from head to toe and knowing what MR could do and, and the training that I had at the Brigham. And so uh, we'd do the MR. I'd take forever to interpret it because I hadn't had that much an experience in it myself. I'd just sit there after hours till 8 o'clock if I had to because there was no textbook on it either mm-hmm. and just figure it out and then report back to the thoracic surgeon who ordered the study or whomever it happened to be. And what happened was a couple of the thoracic surgeons picked up on MR's value because they realized that it was helping them triage their patients and uh, helping prevent unnecessary surgery. And then I I tackled this from multiple sides. I I had built that protocol, ultimately several more, because um, uh, my colleagues wanted it to be just more straightforward in terms of, okay, it's this kind of problem, we're going to order this protocol, and they didn't want to have to understandably tweak every study depending on the patient. So, um, so then um, what would happen is that I, we have these Friday conferences from 8 to 9 a, a, in which uh, our division, uh, or usually the resident in the division, shows the interesting cases of the week. And so once in a while, if a great MR came along that um, made a difference, I would share it at that conference and sort of magnify the experience from, you know, t- from just myself to everybody in our division. And that way, my own colleagues would actually develop a sense of what MR could do in the chest. And it was really a a combination of just doing it and then sharing the results, not only with the referring physician, but with my colleagues that eventually got them uh, to see the light. Because I remember uh, with the first cases that I showed, it would cause quite a ruckus because I think people were like, we don't need this. CT has all the answers and it's much quicker and MR is so expensive. And you know, there are all these arguments for why we shouldn't be doing MR. But I think all, also that comes from just lack of familiarity and discomfort. And when we're uncomfortable with things, we kind of sometimes want to make them go away. And, but over time, I think people started to see, hey, you know, MR actually helps. And I started to see my colleagues start to recommend the studies. But that took a while. It wasn't overnight. And, um, but could it was- I, Could I ask, so yeah, even please. like, on, from the perspective of the referrers, uh, early on, did, were they still kind of um, adamant and still operating at times despite your reads? And would, like, would you get like pathologic correlation which showed that MR ended up being correct? Like what? kind of, were those some of the hurdles that you had to overcome too? You know, occasionally that could happen, but I I work with an uh, an amazing group of thoracic surgery colleagues who are very, they're just open to things that work, right. And I think the key is, I've built a a protocol, and it wasn't just me, it was a team. It was myself, one of our great uh, cardiac technologists, and our uh, MR tech managers, and we, we just worked together uh, with a volunteer, you know, on a magnet to build this first protocol, and it was readable, because that's the other thing. You can't sell something that's not readable, but people looked at the study, and especially the, the EKG-gated double IRT2s, which almost are as clear as a CT to read um, and become clearer the more experience one has, um, that made people more comfortable with it, because it was so unreadable, um, 
based on uh, because of the earlier pulse sequences before the advances that we w hadn't been taken advantage of in MR that uh, I think people were d dissuaded from looking at it and recommending mm -hmm. it but I think that over time changed and you know it, it took some perseverance um, at one of the conferences at which I showed a case I remember one of my colleagues quoting another colleague in a different division saying the the best MRI is a CT <laughs> um, which is a great line That's a low blow. but <laughs> yes yeah exactly um, and so um, you know sometimes when you're challenged it just makes you work harder and, and dig deeper and and so I think that and I really believe that you know we had some we have something here that can really benefit patients and that's very motivating um, so yeah it took it took some perseverance but I think people you know, we're now at a stage where I mean, the volume, just every year it has grown from the beginning. Um, and I think people really get it, which is nice. How many um, cases are done at this point at MGH? Um, still, you know, not a lot. So when we started um, back in 2009, when I started kind of doing the numbers, or actually before I had changed the protocol, I don't think we were doing more than eight to 15 in an entire year. And that number might have included chest wall, which is actually mm -hmm. not part of the chest division. So basically, I started tracking every single MR that we do. And I've done that from the inception. Our practice the first year, I, I actually don't remember what the number was, but it's just grown in a very linear way um, so that we had been doing, let's say we were doing eight in 2008. It grew in such a fashion that um, now we're doing, um, last year we did 200. And, and this is not, this excludes chest wall, this excludes breast, this excludes cardiac. This is just mediastinum pleural lung. And it excludes vascular. Yeah, and excludes cardiovascular. Yeah, exactly. It excludes vascular. So it's pure, you know, mediastinum pleural lung indications. And we only perform these examinations during monitored time between uh, you know, Monday and non-holiday weekdays, between start times of eight and four. And this is another way in which we sure ensure image quality. Now, how necessary is that? It's necessary for us. And the reason is that our um, institution is so big that when you have a low volume examination like uh, thoracic MR, although it's increasing, there's going to be limited experience. When you have 120 full-time, well, let's say 120 to 130 techno MR technologists spread out over 14 clinical magnets with an exam that even if you've done 200 in a year, just do the math, each, each of those techs isn't getting that much experience. So it, it's just this um, takes constant educational effort. Um, once, or, once a year, once every other year, I, I go to each of our um, outline um, imaging clinics and uh, do in-services as well as uh, what an in-service at MGH, the uh, technologists to share um, what MR can do with them. So they, they, they you know, want them to be excited about it too and not anxious when it comes across their desk. And, and uh, so what does MR do? Why are we doing it? And how to get good quality images. Um, so we, we talk about all those things. I also give an in-service to our, our group about once a year. That includes the incoming fellows any residents who happen to be there, in addition to staff, and uh, anyone who's interested on staff can come as well, and uh, just talk about how do we monitor these studies, how do we protocol these studies, how do we, because quality is everything. If you don't have image quality, you can't make good decisions and, and help the patients, so. 
Along yeah. the lines of image quality, just yeah. staying on that topic, um, do, do you find yourself sitting by the scanner with the technologist, or are they pretty um, self-sufficient at this point? Oh, like, I see. Yeah. yeah. For, or do, mm. are you kind of con constantly communicating with them? Right. So um, f for practical considerations, I can't sit at the scanner. I wish I could. It's fun to do. Um, I can do that on my academic day, but that's just about it. Um, so because of the high volume, because I'm never just on MRI, and, and that goes for the other staff who cover MR in my division, um, we really have to monitor sort of teleradiology style via PACS, and they send images to PACS for us to check. And we've gotten to a point now um, that we've been able to minimize the phone calls between us and the technologists performing the study, and because what we don't want to do is slow things down. We want the tech to have a good experience, the patient to have a good experience, and for the exam to go fast enough that the patient doesn't want to get out of there, you know, before the exam is done. You want everybody to be happy, and so phone calls can speed things up if, if a tech's going in the wrong direction. You want to catch it, but um, otherwise, uh, you really want to let, let, let them scan. Mm -hmm. And um, they, it's basically, a great chest MR is really a, a combination of the best of body MRI with some additional cardiac, one or two additional cardiac uh, sequences. And the techs have been doing body MR for 20 years now. So um, I don't think those, those breath hold imaging, uh, image acquisition techniques are difficult for them. Um, and the, the EKG gated technique, it's interesting. You would think, oh, only the cardiac uh, MR techs are gonna be able to do that. Well, well, we did these in-services and I went with our, our wonderful technologist, uh, Jake Calkins, to um, our outlying uh, facilities as well as the hospital and we, um, you know, basically he taught all the techs how to EKG gate. So for the one pulse sequence that we do that requires EKG gating, our non-cardiac techs do a great job. They're like, no issues, they do a great job with it. The main issue for the, our technologists at this point is that they aren't trained in tech school in chest MR imaging, and I'd love to see that change. Um, they don't spend a lot of time learning uh, chest anatomy and the hardest part for them is finding the lesion because most of the time we're doing problem solving based on an indeterminate lesion on CT and we might be imaging a two centimeter lesion in the thymic bed but I think the hardest thing for them is identifying the lesion and so one of the um, most recent um, studies that I've done that was just published uh, this year JTI. yes that's right was um, that involved uh, a survey of uh, our technologists in terms of, you know, how can we help them uh, speed up acquisition times? Where do they see the roadblocks to doing uh, chest MR faster? The, the study itself was just really looking at the variability, the tremendous variability in MR acquisition times for the same protocol, same type of examination, um, and how it could vary between text, between sites, and um, you know, on any, any given day, and what's that all about? So it looked into that, and the text, one of their best suggestions, um, and one of the things that they find most helpful is if we can literally circle with an ROI in our PAC system where the lesion is in all three planes on the most recent prior imaging, and refer to it in our protocol detail section of our electronic protocol system. Because if they know where to go, 
it's almost autopilot. Mm. They can do it on their own. We just have them call us right before they're about to give contrast so that we can check because obviously you don't want to bridge burn, give, you know, give contrast if you have to repeat anything. Mm. But they've been doing a great job and it's just getting better and better with every passing year. And I think part of that is, uh, part of the reason for that also is that they just have more experience. We, we have more exams for them to, to train on. And this year, I think it looks like we're going to do at least 240. It's just really picked up again. That bodes well for ex experience on the, from the standpoint of our techs, our radiologists, referring physicians, and so forth. So of those like 240 that you're seeing this year, could you kind of break down what types of indications you're typically seeing and what are the general indications that anyone out there who's listening might need to know for non-vascular chest MR? Sure. So um, our bread and butter is, is thymic imaging. MR is tremendously helpful in triaging surgical versus non-surgical patients for uh, thymic lesions. Um, I, another study um, I did earlier um, with uh, my uh, surgical colleagues and radiology colleagues is um, a study which uh, looked at how much unnecessary thymectomy we were doing at MGH and, and um, what the cause of that was. And look, we looked at all thymectomy results from the years 2006 to 2012 and found that 26% of our uh, thymectomies were for benign disease and specifically thymic hyperplasia and thymic cysts. And those two diagnoses can be made not so much by CT if you don't have a water attenuation lesion on CT that's a cyst that looks like a cyst or if you, if you don't see intercalated fat in the thymic tissue, uh, but they can be made by MRI. And I think that was obviously my, my stealthful goal with doing this study was to show uh, that, that uh, indirectly that we, we should be doing more MRI to try to prevent unnecessary surgery in these patients, many of whom underwent a uh, thoracotomy, or actually all of whom went, underwent a thoracotomy for benign disease. And, and that, you know, can't be taken lightly because it's invasive surgery. Even robotic is invasive, right? It involves anesthesia. It involves an operating room. It's very costly. It's um, patients out of commission for a bunch of days, four to 12 days or more. Um, I've, I've had a, a case referred to me that looked like it could be a thymic cyst. It had a little rim calcification, you know, and I suggested that this person um, get an MRI. But he went to some place, he went to a, a, an institution in Chicago, saw a surgeon there who I'm sure was an excellent surgeon. But um, the surgeon didn't want to get the MR. He took it out. It was a cyst. And this patient ended up having chest tubes uh, in place for three months because of a chyle leak that developed as a result of the surgery. And so I, mean, I think if, if we have a test that um, costs far less than surgery, far, far less, and maybe one and a half to two times a CT, that prevents all of that unnecessary, uh, of unnecessary surgery, the associated morbidity, mortality costs, that's worth a lot, and we, we have to focus less on the cost of an individual test on, and more on uh, the value it brings and the overall cost to the patient. So thymus is, is number one. Next, uh, other mediastinal lesions that are indeterminate. We can characterize them further by MR. We can compartmentalize them often um, better. Sometimes it's hard to tell a pleural lesion from a po uh, posterior mediastinal or paravertebral mediastinal lesion. And uh, MR is better at, at uh, 
locating it to a compartment. And that, that can make a big difference because if a lesion is paravertebral, it's more apt to be a neurogenic tumor. Mm -hmm. If it's in the pleural space, it cannot be a neurogenic tumor. So those things make a big difference, and they make a difference to the surgeon too. Because even if the, the lesion is going to come out no matter what, and sometimes it doesn't need to come out with neurogenic tumors, it helps the surgeon in terms of approach. And another study we did was looking at how MR made a difference. Um, this one, that one was published in radiology, um, and it was um, looking at how thoracic MR makes a difference to uh, thoracic surgeons. And um, it not only helped them triage cases away from surgery when appropriate, but it helped, it modified their surgical approach in about 50% of the time, and uh, it helped guide them. Uh, so to uh, you know, areas for, let's say, bronchoscopic biopsy, the solid part of the tumor, because a lot of times we can't discern the cellular part from the non-cellular part if there's hemorrhage or um, proteinaceous material, for example. On, and so mediastinal uh, stuff. And then um, last is, is lung, the last frontier. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're moving now and, and getting a lot more volume. And, and that's an in, ter in terms of uh, characterizing pulmonary nodules, usually a centimeter or greater, um, characterizing the tissue inside them. Mm -hmm. So when you have a, a probably benign or possibly benign uh, nodule on CT, uh, that's a centimeter or greater, um, MR can interrogate that nodule to look not only for macroscopic fat, which CT can show, but microscopic fat. Does it have to be a peripheral nodule, or could it be really central? It could be central, yeah, because yeah, hematomas can occur um, centrally as well. Um, and it, so it can look for microscopic fat. It can look for cartilage. This cartilage looks like water on MRI. It can look at the enhancement pattern, which is very different for fat and cartilage-containing hematomas than... Um, solid lesions like carcinoid, which could be another lesion that looks probably benign on a CT. And so it can help, again, sort out what needs surgery, what doesn't. And um, so it, it's showing some value there as well, let alone the plural disease that we all know, mesothelioma and other things. Thank you for listening to part one of the interview with Dr. Jean Ackman. We look forward to bringing you back for part two, where we discuss more of the details of thoracic MR and Dr. Ackman's passion for this modality. Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that journeys through the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.